Hi, everyone. This month on Juno Beach and Beyond, we're featuring an interview about the Battle of the Atlantic with author and historian Ted Barris. The interview you'll hear shortly was conducted by Alex Fitzgerald Black, the executive director of the Juno Beach Center Association. If you've listened to Juno Beach and Beyond in the past, you'll probably be familiar with Alex. He started the podcast three years ago, and before handing over production to me, he was our regular host. So Alex is taking the reins again this month to talk to Ted about Canada's role in the battle, as well as Ted's new book on the subject, The Battle of the Atlantic, Gauntlet to Victory. That conversation, after the music. Canada's war effort is a voluntary effort. That thing was, we knew before anyone else when a ship went down. I went home every day and had to lie about my boring job as a typing clerk and always change the subject. If the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this with their finest hour. So, Ted, thanks so very much for joining us today. Really appreciate having you on the podcast again. It's a pleasure to be back. The first thing I wanted to do before we get started is to congratulate you on your well-deserved appointment as a member of the Order of Canada in the Governor General's New Year's uh, honor. So, congratulations. Um, I did have a question for you about that, though. Why me? Yeah, well, no, <laughs> not exactly why you. But does it feel important to you that Canadian historians and writers like yourself are recognized in this way? Like, that's the one thing. Whenever I get the New Year's honors, I always look at it for the historians and, and, and the chroniclers of our past. Sure, it means a lot. Uh, I mean, I'm humbled and honored by all of this. But it's funny, I do the same thing that you do whenever I see the list. And it's not to see if I'm there. It's to see... Who are the people on that list I, I've never heard of before? And often, it's people who work subterraneanly. They just, they're not obvious. I mean, you and I who have some public persona um, are recognized because of our connections to museums and our connections to writing, and I do a lot of broadcast work and emceeing and public speaking, that sort of thing. I suppose I wouldn't be that subterranean. But I remember, just as an example, uh, 25 years ago, my dad received the Order of Canada. And for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with dad's story, he, he uh, was an American-born um, writer, born in New York City, prior to the Second World War, served as a medic in the U.S. Army, came back, fortunately, at the end with a few scratches and some mental scars to New York City and then emigrated to Canada because he got an offer to work at the Globe and Mail in Toronto. And so dad, when he got the Order of Canada, wasn't for his broadcasting, wasn't for his journalism at the Globe and Mail or his hosting television shows. It was about the fact that he had given so much exposure to artists who had never been seen or heard of before, all Canadian. So he got the Order of Canada for chronicling Canadian musical artists which was a great way of saying, this is an important part of our culture which otherwise would have been lost and whose artists would never have been recognized. So in a way, I look 
in a fashion as blazing or following in his footsteps, having chronicled the stories of veterans in Canadian wartime situations where otherwise they might not have been. I mean, a lot of people do this. I'm fortunate to have now 20 books behind me, many of them in the category of military history, um, and telling stories that might otherwise have gone uh, without being told and lost. Well, absolutely. And you're, you know, keeping up that legacy from your father and, and both of you have the Order of Canada now, and that's just great. So we'll switch our uh, our topic here a little bit um, to the book in question. Why a book about the Battle of the Atlantic and why now? There are a number of reasons, a number of triggers. I, I can't repeat the work that's been done by the scholars on the subject, like Roger Sarkey and, and Mark Melner, and to a certain extent, David Berkison and others. But to me, uh, there were voices that had never been heard before. And I had bumped into these voices over the course of my researching other things. This is my 20th book. I probably have interviewed somewhere between six and 7,000 veterans over 50 years of doing this. And sitting on the back burner were many, many stories from veterans I'd interviewed who were either Royal Canadian Navy veterans or Royal Canadian Air Force veterans or merchant Navy veterans. And I'd never had the chance to tell their stories. Small anecdote to illustrate. In 1976, I can remember this like yesterday, I was working with a radio station in Saskatoon. And they asked me, because I had done some, I had done some military writing at that point, would you put together for us, for Remembrance Day, uh, some sort of a documentary with voices of veterans? And I thought, hey, this would be great. Because at that point, I was eager to do interviews in any areas, uh, mostly entertainment um, and, and, and uh, news. Um, I happened to know a family in Saskatoon connected to my wife uh, named Doig. Uh, Doig Industrial was a little nuts and bolts company. And I knew that the, the man who was the originator of the business, a guy named Harold T. Doig, we used to call him H.T., um, had been a Navy veteran. And I asked him if he would allow me to interview him about his experiences. And he said, well, I guess so. Well, we got together with a couple of my buddies at the Legion. So there were two or three of them that got together with me at the Legion, and I was nervous as hell because I, I hadn't really done much of that at that point. And I said, you know, what was your experience? And he said, well, here we were, because actually he lived in Winnipeg at the time. He and his brother, his younger brother, George, I decided to join the Navy. And here they are in the middle of Canada. They're in the prairies. Neither of them has ever seen much water aside from, you know, the Red River and the Saskatchewan River and maybe that's it, some lakes. They'd never been to sea. And suddenly these two guys are thrown into the Navy because they wanted to serve and that seemed like the right thing to do. So we talked about his service. He was based in Halifax for a while and so was George. And George was on a number of corvettes. Uh, in particular, the Hepatica, HMCS Hepatica. And he told me a number of stories about George and himself and how they served. He mostly ashore, George mostly at sea. And I was riveted. This was absolutely, you know, it was like, you know, uh, Buck Rogers stuff to me, you know? And so I quizzed them him about it and got all the stories. And I said, where did George go? And he said, he was on one of the toughest runs of the North Atlantic, the run to Murmansk. And this is a tangent from the main 
travel routes between North America and Britain, mostly between, you know, Halifax and Londonderry or Liverpool and so on. This was a spur line after the Soviets were invaded in 1941 by the Germans and essentially were crushed. They were screaming for supplies, and so the North Atlantic convoys were extended to include a line that went through the Arctic to Murmansk and was among the deadliest because of the cold, the unpredictability of the ice, and the severity of the attacks by the U-boats along that North Cape of, of Norway. Anyway, so H.T. talked about George going on the Murmansk run, and, and he lost track of him for about a year because that was a long run. And once you run that run, it was back and forth and back and forth. And if you survived, it was a miracle. And H.T. said to me in one of his final comments, I said to him, you know, how had it affected George? He said, well, I hadn't seen him in a year, and he came back to Halifax. And here was my kid brother, and by that he meant maybe 19 or 20. And he said, my kid brother, his head was now full of white hair. His hair had gone gray with the stress and the tension of that run. Here was a 20-year-old kid absolutely changed physically, not just emotionally, by that incredible uh, journey delivering goods to romance and, or, you know, guiding them and escorting the convoys. And I knew that that story would live with me forever. And so that's been sitting in the back of my brain since 1976. So that's right where I care to be when I'm writing these stories. And so these are great Battle of the Atlantic stories, which all of the academics, there's no room for these stories in, in, in such a large story. The, the Battle of the Atlantic is 2,074 days. So how do you condense that into one volume? Well, you can't unless you use the voices, such as I have, to help propel the book. So that's where it all came from. Brilliant. Excellent. And I think next, my next question, you know, does kind of take us into the context a little bit more. Um, can you set the stage for us a little bit? You know, how and why did the Battle of the Atlantic begin, you know, 2,000 days before it ended? Well, it's triggered by a number of things. Um the first one being in September the 3rd, 1939, when the Germans sink the SS Athenia off the coast of Ireland, and Britain declares war on Germany. And then we're there seven days later. Um, and immediately, the tactic for keeping supply lines, which had been there in peacetime, flowing from North America to Britain, um, to protect them was to convoy. This was a, a British phenomenon. The Royal Navy had invented this in the First World War to protect ships as security in numbers. But the security is only as great as the strength of the escorts in the air and on the water, meaning the naval vessels that are keeping the, the U-boats down and or, or you know deflecting them or chasing them and depth charging them and so, so forth. And the Air Force, for as far as they could go offshore, driving the U-boats down, because this, this is a detail I didn't realize. When a U-boat is submerged... It's traveling much slower because of the density of the water and so on. It couldn't keep up with the convoys. So if the Air Force could drive them down, the U-boats would lose contact with the convoys. On the surface, it was the exact opposite. The U-boats could maneuver and speed around to their locations. And then, of course, Carl Dunitz, the uh, gross admiral of the U-boat uh, Waffe, says we attack at night. So we have all of the advantages, the maneuverability, the speed, and at night, the invisibility. The attacks begin almost immediately on the convoys across the North Atlantic because in uh, Dunitz's assessment, this was the way to strangle Britain. And that was the realization that I had to come through my, in my research, that it wasn't about, you know, munitions 
to the war effort. It was about keeping England alive. And coincidentally, when I was writing the manuscript back in 2020, I got so engrossed in the battles because I had all these great memoirs and interviews that I'd done with sailors and airmen and merchant sailors and so on going way, way back. I got a letter from a friend of mine in eastern Ontario, um, a woman named McAllister. And she sent me, just out of a whim, a letter that she had in her files, dated September the 3rd, 1939, written by her aunt, Alex Mascheter, a Canadian living in England, in Birmingham, on the very first day of the war, assessing what her life would be like now that war had returned to England. So she's sitting there, and she's writing this letter on September the 3rd, 1939, saying, the blackout curtains are going up. All the lights are out so that we're invisible in the dark. Um, and very soon we're going to be dealing with less fuel, less gas and oil and electricity, and rationing is about to reoccur as it had in the First World War. And it suddenly dawned on me that the book has to be about the context of this battle between the convoys and the U-boats, but it also has to be about the realization that this is about keeping England alive, not just the, the naval power, the air power that Britain was, but its civilians, 40 million people, depended on the daily arrivals of ships. They had been a maritime economy since the very beginning. So if the Germans could strangle that, they could kill England, essentially. So the battle is about keeping England alive, and that letter helped me realize that. So that was another of the, of the contextual things that, that drove me in, this, in the nature of this book. Um, and forgive me now, I forgot what your original question was. How and why did the battle begin? Yeah, and the, the further context of it. Well, okay, so now we are an Atlantic power, albeit 13 ships at the beginning of the war, but 405 fighting ships at the end of the war, the fourth largest navy in the world then. We step up because we are a member of the Commonwealth. We have a navy that's obviously working in the North Atlantic anyway, and we are put in, um, uh, in charge of a good stretch of that North Atlantic escort and convoys. And we were not well equipped to do that. At the very beginning of the war, one of the men I interviewed is a guy named uh, Desmond Pierce, Debbie Pierce, wonderful character, met him 30 years ago. And he talked about being a sub-lieutenant on uh, HMCS Restigouche. Well, Restigouche was a British destroyer which was on loan to Canada at the beginning of the war because we had no ships or very few. And so he talks about in this very first operation rushing across the North Atlantic to pull troops out of France because it's now the spring of 1940 and Dunkirk has happened and he's in the midst of it and a little down the coast, a little place called saint valley en and he's there pulling Scottish troops out of the water and he's bringing a, 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 a boat of them back to the destroyer, HMCS Restigouche, and as he's going back out to sea with the first group of refugees, as it were, the ships are roaring in beside him, um, Restigouche and... Saint-Laurent, I think, and they're firing at the Germans on the shoreline. And these are the very first shots fired in anger by the Royal Canadian Navy against the Germans. And Debbie was there, Pierce was there, recognizing this all happening. So um, these are, are, are moments that help put the reason we were there into some sort of focus for me. And then the rest of it is just digging deeper into our evolution as a, as a stronger Navy and a more tactically aware Navy, and there are a number of steps in that, in that case, and the Air Force and the Merchant Navy stepping up to make sure that 
um, that lifeline isn't broken. And we, we came very close to losing the Battle of the Atlantic in 1942 because the, the losses were so overwhelming. And the greatest responsibility, or those of us on duty at that moment, were the Canadians. And they had to take the blame and therefore step up with better equipment, more training, and so on, better ships to turn the tide, which they did in 1943. Yeah, it's a tough a tough part of the story to, to, to tell. I mean, it's the reality is when the Battle of the Atlantic is quote-unquote won, or at least, you know, it really starts to go in the Allies' favor in the spring of 1943, there are very few Canadian ships, you know, at sea doing that work because they're back in Canada or in Britain, Britain you know, getting refurbished, you know, getting retrained so that they can go out and do this work better because in 1942, they had done it on a shoestring. Right. And, and, that, and that moment is a really critical one in the story because... Uh, and I didn't realize this until I did the, the research. Um, in December of 42, when the losses are mounting exponentially, going off the, you know, the end of the, of the, of the meter in terms of losses, 80% of the losses to the convoys were on the Canadian's watch. And Winston Churchill calls King and says, William Lamb Mackenzie King, our prime minister, says, I want the Canadians off the North Atlantic because it's not working. They're not trained. They haven't got the right equipment. Duh, of course, but they're the ones who are responsible for these losses. So King acquiesces. The Canadians, most of them go to Britain to have their ships, the convoy escorts, corvettes and destroyers and, and minesweepers, upgraded with the same technology that the Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy have had for three years. They finally get the detection devices, the weaponry to respond and so on, the, the hedgehogs and all the rest of it. Um, and are now fully equipped, better trained. And what's their first job early in 1943? They go to Operation Torch, which is moving tremendous numbers of troops and ships from Britain to the Mediterranean. And the Canadians' first job after being re-equipped and retrained is to join that and escort those ships. What do they do in January 1943, the Canadians? They knock out three U-boats in one month. Why? Because the Mediterranean is shallower. They can see the coastlines. The U-boats have fewer refuges to hide in. And once cornered and, and once better skilled as the Canadians are by this time, better equipped, they zero in on them right away and they knock out the three of them. And, and then they're, um, the Canadians are honored by being reviewed by Louis Lord Mountbatten in Algeria. No, in um, Alexandria. <laughs> and Mountbatten calls them a wonderful bunch of young bastards. <laughs> and of course, then they're back on the North Atlantic and they turn the tide in May with Black May, and the U-boat wolf packs are broken because they have the skill, the capability, and, and so on to do the job better. So it's a really critical moment, that late 42, early 43. Well, on that point about Operation Torch is really important. You, you alluded to how important it was to keep Britain in the war so that mm -hmm. they could, you know, continue to produce munitions and, and take the fight, you know, to the Germans, whether it's through Bomber Command or, or through other means. But also just the incredibly important component of any at the end of the day the allies need to get back into europe yeah. and to, to do that they need to develop britain as a base from which they can supply and arm and equip everybody who's going to do that and so once again you know the sea lanes are so critical especially in that time you know we you know yes there was plenty of aircraft but you didn't have the sort of transport capabilities you have today you know, you needed those convoys and you needed them to arrive. James Holland talks about this all the time. It's so much easier to plan an operation that's as complex as 
Operation Overlord or Operation Torch or Operation Husky, mm-hmm. if you can at least guarantee maybe 90% of what you're sending is going to get there? And James Holland got that notion from Richard Holmes, his predecessor in military history in Britain, because Holmes said, first you win at sea, and then you have a chance of winning on the land. So, very true. And and the other the other element of of Britain's survivability, and I talk about it in my book, and this is an operation I didn't even know about. Right after the beginning of the war, when things are not looking good for Britain, their darkest hour and the loss of so many ships and the Battle of Britain and the Blitz and so on, Churchill begins to worry. And so what does he do? But he rounds up all of the gold and securities in Britain. And in two summertime convoys, ships all of Britain's net worth to Canada to be housed in banks in Montreal and Ottawa, just in case. And it's Operation Fish. And it's an extraordinary story because the Germans had no idea that this was going on. I mean, they were obviously attacking many of the convoys, but these two went unblemished. They went through some pretty rough weather, which probably helped. But again, that was how insecure Britain was at the very beginning. And, And Churchill actually wondered, I'm sure, that he might be operating or leading the war from Ottawa, not from London, you know. Your inspiration for the book was those voices. Can you tell us a little bit more about the experiences of aircrew, merchant mariners, sailors, perhaps on both sides of the conflict? Um, What was the war at sea like for them? Grim. It was grim. You know, if you weren't cold, you were wet, and if you weren't wet, you were cold, and it didn't have a whole lot of alternative at sea and and, and those very congested conditions aboard corvettes and, and destroyers. And if you were a submariner, it was claustrophobia and uh, many weeks at sea, uh, not necessarily the best conditions for them either. It's, it, what's, what's interesting, and, and you can appreciate this, so often those of us who write military history, particularly on this side of the ocean and, and this perspective, we're always accused of being uh, the victors who write the history. And I didn't want to be accused of that, so I wanted to make sure that I had as much of the U-boat submariner experience, not necessarily the commanders, although they're there because they were so eager and 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 capable to um, bring so much destruction to the convoys with their, their wolf packs. I was interested in getting stories of average uh, submariners, and I found several of them. Walter Schmiedenknopf comes to mind. This is a guy who joins the Navy early on in, in 1939. He trains. He goes to Wilhelmshaven. He trains in the U-boat uh, school there. And he meets a really interesting interesting instructor, a guy named Schuster, who trains them on all the different skills he's going to need as an engineer, you know, management of the engines and all of the mechanics and so on. But once a day, every afternoon, he gets Schmiedenknopf and all of his students to train to escape a sinking or sunken U-boat. And they line them up and put them inside a, a sort of a replica U-boat. And they're in bathing suits and snorkels, their breathing devices. And they're put inside this smaller U-boat, which is then f- filled with water. And the air disappears completely. And above that U-boat replica is another U-boat, which essentially is another tube full of water. When the water goes to the top of the bottom uh, tube and the air runs out, they're the men who are training, put on their snorkels, and they have to go to the hatch between the two tubes. And the hatch only opens when the water reaches the top of the lower tube. And when it does, their job is to get out of the lower tube, 
with their snorkels on, go through the upper tube full of water, replicating the water between the top of the sunken U-boat and the surface of the ocean to escape. And he's told to do this every day, every afternoon. He said it was frightening, but he knew it was valuable. In 1944, U-767, which was late to come into the war, one of the larger U-boats, uh, is involved in attempting to thwart the invasion in, across the, the Channel in France. And in fact, on the 15th of June, his U-boat, 767, is, is called back from duty farther out into the Atlantic to help thwart the, the invasion, and they sink a frigate in the English Channel. And they're pounced upon by the Royal Navy and other ships, and 767 goes to the bottom of the English Channel. And it's crippled. It's never coming back. And now the 85 to 100 men aboard 767 have to find a way out. And all that training that Walter did in Wilhelmshaven in 1939-40 comes to bear. And he's the only man to survive, the only man to escape. So, and then I got permission to use sections of his memoir from his three daughters in, in BC because when he surfaces, Walter does, he's captured by the Royal Navy, sent to North America to spend the rest of the war as a POW, some of which was spent in Canada. He liked BC an awful lot, came back to Germany at the end of the war, immigrates to Canada, raises a family, and his three daughters gave me permission to use the memoir. So it's that way that I get some balance of what the submariners were dealing with. On our side of the picture, great stories about Air Force coping with the problem of extending our reach over the North Atlantic. Um, as you can appreciate, Twin-engine Cansos and Hudsons can only go so far to sea and provide so much coverage driving the U-boats down to slow them down, in effect, and lose contact with the convoys for a, so long a period of time. Then they have to go back to North America or down from Iceland and back or out from Britain and back. In the middle of the North Atlantic is an area called the Black Pit, which essentially is that area where the air crew cannot extend their reach far enough to give the convoys protection. And that's where the U-boats run rampant over the, the convoys and decimate them. Sometimes 25 and 30% of the convoys are lost. And it's not until the air crews with better equipment, four-engine aircraft liberators, for example, can go farther to sea from Iceland and North America and Britain to extend coverage over the Black Pit that there's the extended safety. And in the course of that effort, 790-some air crew men are lost in the fights with the U-boats on the surface, losses at sea and storms, all those things. And we don't recognize that that's a part of the Battle of the Atlantic. We think of the ships, merchant ships and the, and the escorts. We don't think about the Air Force. And some great stories of innovation and tactical um, reversals. Um, a guy named Everett Norville Small, Molly Small was his name, from a little town called Allendale up near Barrie, Ontario. And Small is a former bush pilot, he actually served in the Royal Flying Corps in the first war, becomes a bush pilot between the wars, comes back into the Air Force in the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan, is stationed in the maritime, so he's training his crews while he's providing service and coverage over the, the uh, eastern seaboard and in through the, Saint Lawrence, the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And he suddenly comes across a U-boat in April of 1941, and all he's got aboard his cancer were bombs. <laughs> and so he drops the bombs trying to hit the U-boat, misses, claims he'll do better next time, and he does. What he does then is to realize that when he goes to sea with his training, never mind bombs, use depth charges because that was the best weapon against the U-boats from the Corvettes and the destroyers and so on. 
so too from the Hudsons and the Cansos. Three months later, after extensive training of his crews, he catches another U-boat unawares and with the depth charges sinks it and becomes the first anti-submarine Royal Canadian Air Force crew to sink a U-boat in uh, July of 1941. So the, the tactical awareness of Canadians adapting to the conditions, realizing that you have to change your approach to the attacks. The other thing he came up with, it wasn't his idea. He realized that if the Germans were on the surface and they had a, some sort of scout on, in a conning tower looking at the sky, inevitably, if they saw a dark spot in the sky, it was an enemy aircraft. Well, it was Molly Small's notion, why do we paint the undersides of our aircraft, our war aircraft, the Cansos and the, and the Hudsons and the PBYs and the rest of them, white, so that they would, from the ground or from the water, disappear into the sky. And instead of attacking from low altitude, attack from high altitude. All these wonderful tactical changes are implemented by virtue of trial and error and a better sense of how to do the job better. And Small is one of the leaders in that category. No one's ever heard of him. Who's heard of Molly Small? Hollywood would have made a movie about him. John Wayne would have been the guy. <laughs> but no, not so. And then the merchant sailors, I've already described how remarkable their stories of loyalty and sacrifice and loss. Um, we lost 1,300 merchant sailors during the war to the Battle of the Atlantic lost at sea. What about the role of support on the home front? Um, and I'm thinking in this, you know, and then I think some of the women also served on the war front as well. Uh, but I'm thinking war workers uh, and, and the Wrens and, and mm -hmm. perhaps the RCAFWDs as well, supporting the Air Force. Great stories. Um, that was one of the joys of this book was showcasing just the extraordinary contribution of women in the Battle of the Atlantic. They weren't in the warships. They weren't in the merchant navy largely, but they were involved in other really critical roles. When the Canadian government allows women in front line positions in the Royal Canadian Navy, creating the Wrens, the Women's Royal Canadian Naval Volunteers, um, a number of the women I'd interviewed stepped up. One of my favorites, including the one I alluded to earlier, uh, Ronnie Egan. Ronnie was a clerk in, in, uh, at Staticona in Halifax. Another wonderful Wren character I met was a woman named Margaret Los Halliburton. And Margaret and I used to co-host Remembrance Day events in Toronto years ago. And so I got to know her and her story. And when it's announced that the Canadian government is going to um, allow women in front blind positions, she's really eager to go. But her mother is her responsibility. Her mother is widowed and frail. And so she's staying at home with her mom. And when the announcement of the government allowing women into the Navy and Margaret expresses some interest to his, her mother. Her mother says, I got a bunch of wimps for daughters. They don't, they're not eager to get out there and do their part. Well, Margaret, of course, wanted to, but she was hesitant. And her mother says, I want you to have a life. So Margaret takes that as a signal to join the Navy and she becomes a Huff Duff operator. Um, and Huff Duff is high frequency direction finding. And essentially it was a device that allowed radio operators to pinpoint the locations of German U-boat transmissions at sea. The Germans didn't know we could do this. And the Huff Duff operators could triangulate on those transmission positions and locate U-boats. And then Margaret would run down the hall with her latest triangulation based on the Huff Duff calculations. And that would be transmitted to Bletchley Park in England where they were decoding Enigma. And the combined intelligence allowed the convoys to passively deal with the U-boats, avoid them. We wouldn't necessarily at that stage be confronting the U-boats as much as we were later on in the war, but at least we could avoid the trouble. So Margaret was involved right from the beginning in 1942-43 with that capable 
uh, process of pinpointing transmissions of the U-boats. The other women that I found really fascinating were the women who were involved in uh, the shipyards. I, got, I came across, suddenly came across a photograph one day, and it was a newspaper. It was a photograph of a number of women, three or four of them, sitting in a lifeboat in a shipyard having lunch. <laughs> and I thought, well, of course, women were known for their roles in you know, building Bren guns. We had Veronica Foster, Ronnie the Bren gun girl. Surely there were women who'd stepped up and worked in the shipyards. And indeed, there were something like 4,000 within the first year of the war who were active in shipyards as welders and, and uh, steel workers and, and other uh, crew jobs in the shipyard building the ships. So they were great. And I found some neat stories. to, to and, and they ran into a lot of resistance because the union movement in the shipyards was always very strong. And the notion of women invading that territory, which was principally men's jobs, was a bit of a problem. But when the women said, hey, we're not here to displace anybody, we're here to contribute to the war effort. Well, how do you deny them that? But, you know, great stories of, of women and men who played critical, invisible roles in this extraordinary 2074-day battle. So it's a really great book. I, I really enjoyed it cover to cover. And, you. you know, all these stories uh, are there. Um, what do you hope people will take away from your book about Canada's role in the battle? And and where do you feel the Battle of the Atlantic sits among our country's accomplishments in the Second World War? Where the Battle of the Atlantic fits in our understanding of, of the Second World War is very low on the identification scale. And I thought about this long and hard as to why that is probably because there was no one moment when it changed. You know, no one... Well, there was Black May in 1943 when the U-boat packs were broken, but they continued to savage the convoys for the rest of the war right through until May the 6th, 7th, 8th, when Donitz, who's now the Reich's president, Hitler having committed suicide, tells the U-boats to surrender wherever they are. But, but it's that long campaign with ups and downs. It's a war, it's a battle of attrition. We had the upper hand, they had the upper hand. They come up with utensils and weapons and, and devices to hide the U-boats or make them stronger and more powerful. Then we compensate. They come up with acoustic torpedoes, which home in on the propellers in the water of, of Allied warships. We come up with the CAT, the anti-acoustic -tor anti torpedo device the Canadians come up with this. And it's just back and forth and back and forth the whole wartime long. And so y you can't say, you know, it was that day on the beach uh, at Juneau in 1944, where the tide turned, where this moment occurred, or Dieppe in, in 42, or, you know, uh, the siege in Hong Kong. All those things are key Canadian moments, and they all come crashing in on one day or a few days. I mean, even my book about the Great Escape is a year in the lives of the tunnelers from 1943 to 44, when they started tunneling till they broke out. Um, this is much more massive and doesn't have a hinge point in the entire story. So partly because of that, that it's a kind of a platform on which the rest of the war occurs in many ways, and you and I have described this already today, and that is that without winning at sea, we couldn't have a chance of winning on land. So that sort of um, rather uh, innocuous aspect of the whole war pastiche um, makes it less known. We can't say, oh, that day, well, you know, every spring in the May, in, in on this first Sunday in May, we have Battle of Atlantic Sunday. And so the service of 
veterans and all the services who participate in the battle are recognized then. But that's probably just because Black May was an interesting one hinge point. And I think it's also, it's, it's kind of about the end of the war too, right? It's, yeah. It's about the battle being over. Yeah. May. And May, sure. Um, so that's part of the reason it's not there. And and the other one is is the age-old problem that I've discovered in interviewing thousands of veterans. They don't boast. They never did. They didn't wave a flag over the bodies of their dead comrades to say, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. Look at the battle I won, the war I won, the victory I bought, brought home. Uh, it's a Canadian thing. Uh, it's not. We are not like the British and the Americans in that sense that they're proud of their victories and make sure we remember forever. So there's, there's that sort of Canadian characteristic of our, of our uh, observances, not celebrations, that makes this less of a, of a selling point as a sexy kind of attractive day to remember and acknowledge service. Um, maybe that's going to change as the veterans continue to fade and these stories are repeated by those of us who care, you and I, um, that these people and their service and those stories, however vast they are, are remembered. What I want people to take away is that, like so many of the great Canadian wartime stories, mostly volunteers were the essence of the story. At the beginning of the Second World War, we had 3,000 regular sailors in the Royal Canadian Navy. By the end of the war, we had 100,000 men and women in the Navy. 405 fighting ships. All of those people who went back to civilian lives after the war and essentially were told, don't talk about it. It's not something that you should think about. Get on with your lives. And for a generation, they did that. And I'm hoping that when people read this book, they go, wow, we did that. They did this. What extraordinary people they were. And they just came from ordinary walks of lives. They were students and clerks and business people and you know lumberjacks and farmers and fishermen and they all stepped up and became warriors for those six years and changed the world gave the gave the world a second chance many thanks to ted barris for talking to alex for this episode Ted's recent book, Battle of the Atlantic, Gauntlet to Victory, is available wherever books are sold. If you liked this conversation, you'll like the book even more. This episode of Juno Beach and Beyond was hosted by Alex Fitzgerald Black and produced by me, Louisa Simmons. You can find more episodes of Juno Beach and Beyond at junobeach.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We're on all social media with the handle Juno Beach Center. The Juno Beach Center is Canada's second World War Museum and Cultural Center, located in Normandy, France.